Well, welcome to another episode of On The Couch with myself, Henry Jennings, from Marcus Today. And today, I'm really lucky to be chatting to Scott Kirkland, who is the co-founder of EM Vision Medical Devices. And Scott has held several senior sales positions, including head of client sales at Quantcast, a U.S. technology company. And prior to founding Kirkland Capital, he targeted emerging technologies, and he oversees EMV, which is the stock code, the ASX stock code, the company we're talking about, their corporate affairs, commercial strategy, and business development. And he's also charged, which is a big job, I guess, with optimizing the company's capital requirements, including further non-dilutive financing and grants. So welcome, Scott. Really great to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Henry. It's uh, it's it's really good. Unfortunately, this was going to be an in-person podcast, my first one, but of course, COVID has has taken that away from us at the moment. But just to remind our listeners that this is general advice only, so please do your own research, contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas, or insights from either myself or Scott in this podcast. So general advice only. But welcome, Scott. It's really great to have you on the show today. First up. EMV, what does it do? Give us a, a brief summary of uh, of the technology and the and the business that you guys are in. Sure, and I think the easiest way to think about what we do is is we're aiming to address challenges in accessibility in medical imaging. So our lead product is a portable brain scanner. It's for rapid stroke diagnosis and monitoring. And we have two generations of this product under development. So we've got a Gen One device, which is a cart based system. So that's for use in hospitals and a Gen 2 device, which is a standalone helmet for pre-hospital use, so ambulance, uh, air and road. We've been listed since December 2018. Uh, As you mentioned, I oversee corporate affairs side of the business and our CEO is Rob Weinberger. Many of your audience may remember him from his time at Nanasonics. He was instrumental in their in their journey, uh, was CEO there for about about three years. Um, I, I was lucky enough to see Ron uh, present a few years ago, which piqued my interest. And as I was saying to you earlier, it, it was something that really got my attention. And I, I was very impressed, especially with, with Ron's background from Nanosonics. It's always good to find people that have done it before to some extent and are looking to do something uh, similar again, at least in, in a similar kind of field. Why is there such a need for this? technology, Scott? Sure. So I mentioned we're focusing on stroke first and, you know, everyone has some kind of personal connection to it. It is a leading cause of of disability. It's a major problem. Um, You know, in the time it takes your audience to listen to this podcast, there'll probably be another 20 or 30 strokes in Australia. So there's around 60,000 a year here. And what's really important is there's effective treatments. So there's things like clot-busting drugs, TPA. Uh, we know they save lives. We know they reduce disability, but they require neuroimaging before they could be administered. So what clinicians need to understand in the acute phase is what's the type of stroke? Is it ischemic, a blockage? Is it hemorrhagic, a bleed? Because the treatments are very different. And then after that treatment, how did the patient respond? Was it successful? Mm. Have they restored blood flow? Have there been complications? So the challenge is today, there's no way by the bedside to answer these questions. So our opportunity is bringing imaging to the patient wherever they are and enabling the clinicians to make a more informed decision, particularly when time matters. So that's the key thing. It's very Mm -hmm. time sensitive. The earlier you can intervene, the better the patient outcome. So we're talking about often the difference between a full recovery or a life of um, permanent disability. So we're starting with stroke um, and with the same hardware, the same brain scanner we plan 
in time to expand out to other indications, so traumatic brain injury and the like. So what sort of images do doctors need to make these decisions? Obviously, they've got to be pretty detailed and pretty accurate as it can be quite problematic if you give the wrong treatment to the stroke victim. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really, really important question. And for the use cases we're looking at, the important thing to appreciate is we do not need a perfect image. What we need is an image that is good enough to enable a clinician to make a triage or treatment decision. So we're not aiming to replicate the exquisite level of detail um, that you would get in a you know, $2 million, three Tesla MRI, but a good image that the clinician can use to make a more informed decision where CT and MR is not accessible or practical today, which is by the bedside and in the back of ambulances. The, the other important thing is our technology is unique. We're providing novel information. It's not X-ray, it's not MR, it's not ultrasound. It's known as electromagnetic imaging or radio frequency imaging. Uh, and what we're able to provide is a reconstruction of the electrical properties of the brain so that clinicians get uh, an anatomical representation of what's going on, you know, the, the skull, grey matter, white matter, CSF, as well as what we call a fusion image, which shows the site of the stroke, the severity of the stroke, and we have a classifier that tells them the type of stroke, whether it's ischemic or hemorrhagic. And what's encouraging about this technique is it's quite similar to a CT or MR in appearance. So it's familiar to what clinicians are actually used to seeing. So, I mean, this sounds massively high-tech, Scott. Where, where, where did the technology come from initially? Where, where was it invented or was it invented or just uh, an existing technology that was repurposed, I guess? Well, in some ways it is, it is existing repurposed in, in that it has its genesis in non-destructive testing and, and near-field radar. You know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the microwave engineering team at the University of Queensland were looking at using near-field radar methods to detect slope stability challenges in mine shafts. And, and they spun a company out into, uh, a, it was called Ground Probe, which was later acquired by Orica. Uh, and then, right. so early 2000s, um, Professor Stuart Crozier came along uh, and, and restructured that team to explore uh, EM imaging applications for biomedical. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's been a long, it's about a decade in development at the University of Queensland. And probably the, the, the closest comparator to what you see on a frequent basis, or perhaps what we used to see on a frequent basis, is the full body scanners at the airport. You know, millimeter wave scanners that we walk through and they they try and find hidden objects in our clothing. They're operating at higher frequencies, but a lot of the principles uh, are, are similar. So uh, it got to a point at the University of Queensland where it was ready to exit the lab and, and enter the clinic. So that's when Envision came along. We acquired a portfolio of IP and some of the key people, such as uh, Professor Stuart Crozer, he, he left UQ and joined us as our chief scientific officer. Uh, late last right. year. So, so how big is the team working on this? It sounds like you've got a, a fair few uh, brains and some seriously smart people working on this at the moment. There's, there's certainly plenty of brainiacs. Uh, there's <laughs> there's a, a, across multiple states. So we, our, our product design and development team is is all based in Sydney at Macquarie Park. We've got about 20, 24, 25 people now. Um, and that includes, you know, obviously our executive team, you know, head, head of product, regulatory quality affairs, um, design. And then we work very closely with the University of Queensland. So we have an ongoing R&D relationship um, with a, a team led by Professor Amina Bush. Uh, and he, at any point in time, he'll have anywhere from, you know, 15 to 25 research fellows, PhD students 
working on advancing the the techniques. And the important thing to appreciate with that relationship is any new IP that comes out of those endeavors fests with Envision, which is right. really exciting because when we're talking about not just making our algorithms and our imaging better for stroke, but uh, adjacent applications and whole of body applications, you know, there's, you know, we've talked in the past about torso scanners. Um, there's, there's a whole bunch of exciting developments that come out of the university that are funded through grant programs that that uh, we own the IP to. So, so whereabouts are you now, Scott, on, on the timeline for the, for the technology? Sure. How close are we? Sure. So last year we conducted a successful pilot study. So that was the first time our clinical prototype had been used on stroke patients. Uh, we've been collecting further data. That data has been used to basically inform our product development. And now we're in the process of building our first gen units. So those are the cart-based systems. These are the first units that are intended for commercialization. And we plan to take those into uh, expanded clinical studies for our first regulatory submissions, so being TGA, CE, and FDA. So if we want to use a you know pharma development cycle analogy, it's a bit like we're now preparing for our phase three study. Now, I remember when I saw Dr. Ron Weinberger present uh, some years ago in Melbourne, what impressed me was it, it was almost like a motorbike helmet at the time, the technology. It seemed to be um, this sort of uh, portable scanner that he was hoping to have in the back of ambulances, with uh, which looked remarkably similar to maybe even a, a Star Wars stormtrooper helmet that uh, was the sort of the, the first idea of how it was going to work. Is that still part of the product suite that you're looking at? Yeah, look, uh, Star Wars Stormtrooper helmet, certainly the first time I've heard it uh, described as like, but, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're spot on. It, it, look, the headset today is not much bigger than a, a jockey's helmet. It, right. it, and, and one of the big developments with the hardware is we've been able to take the – if you think about our system in two ways, there's, there's what we call the eyes of the system, which are the antennas. So they send all the signals and, and they're basically transceivers. So they send and receive signals. And a brain, and the brain is what we call the VNA. This makes sense of the signals. And in our clinical prototype, that unit lived in our car. It took up most of the trolley. We've been working with a company called Keysight Technologies that makes these to miniaturize it. They've customized it for our use case, and it now lives in our helmet. So right. that that vision of the standalone helmet that lives in the back of an ambulance is is well, well on the path. Uh, down there. But for our Gen 1 device, what that means is we've been able to get rid of cables for our unit, which makes it easy to use. And, and funnily enough, the cables we're using are not, were not inexpensive. So, so that's a benefit. But it, you know, it's funny, with the, with, with the ambulance model, it often draws uh, analogies with the Packawacker story, which mm. you may be familiar with. Some of your younger audience, less so. But you know, the analogy there, so I'll, I'll just, just give some, some detail briefly. But the late media mogul Kerry Packer, you know, he was a big fan of polo and, and in the 19, I think it was 1990, he was playing a polo game and a few minutes in he had a heart attack, fell off his horse and he was, he was pronounced clinically dead for about six minutes. And the ambulance that was on site happened to be one of the very few number of ambulances that actually had a defibrillator in them at the time. And they saved his life. You know, he was asked by a journalist after that, what did he see on the other side? And I think he said, um, the good news is there's no devil. The bad news is <laughs> there's no heaven either. <laughs> it might have been, been a bit more colourful than that. But uh, he, what he did do is he went on to fund for to help fund for New South Wales ambulance to, to, to all have defibs, you know, to widely deploy defibs. And, and, you know, that's in many ways a similar ambition to the Australian Stroke Alliance. They want everyone, regardless of their location, to have the same level of care. And the only way to do that is, like you described, 
ultra lightweight helmet style scanners that are cost effective that can be widely deployed in in ambulances so that's that's the path we're heading down such a good friend of mine recently had a similar experience to carry packer he was playing soccer early in the morning and and he died i think not quite as long as kerry but uh, luckily they managed to get him back with a, a packer whacker not not one from an ambulance but one that actually the club luckily was open and had one in in store so um, it's been a big push i know from my own experience that we've had AEDs littering soccer fields for some time after another friend of mine died uh, about four or five years ago. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very important to get that treatment very early and it saves lives, that's for sure. So you guys have got the backing of the Australian Stroke Alliance. Is that, that the case? That's right, yeah. They're a group of about 30 different organisations across uh, clinical, so some of the leading minds in stroke stroke care, paramedics, um, consumer advocacy groups. We're a, we're a key commercial and industry partner. What's really important with their backing is, okay, we've got some non-dilutive funding, which is great. You know, we're getting uh, about $8 million in, in stage funding, but probably more important is we've got some of the brightest minds in stroke, some of the most respected minds in stroke supporting what it is that we're doing. So if you take, uh, as an example, the co-chairs of the Alliance and, and the, the chief investigators Jeff Dodden and Steve Davies, these are two gentlemen that have been for the last for, for a number of decades involved in improving the standard of care of stroke treatment globally, particularly around widening the window for those stroke treatments I described earlier. So having people like that supporting what it is we're doing to help in the future make our products part of a new standard of care around the world, that's 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 really important. So we've got financial grant backing, non-dilutive grant backing through the federal government, but also really strong clinical support for for what it is that we're doing. So in terms of the next phase, you, you compared it to a farmer with a phase three trial. How long are the trials going to take for your hospital machine? Sh- sure. And, and one thing with that with that comparison, the farmer versus medical device, I, I, I would make the comment that we're fortunate in that with medical devices. They're typically a lot cheaper than pharma uh, development mm. exercises you'll appreciate, but also a lot quicker than developing a new drug. Yet, right. you know, the, the payoff can be just as big. So going into next year, it's all about achieving that clinical validation to support our regulatory submissions. Uh, so our ambition is to ship our first units, you know, all going well for commercial sale in calendar year 23. Well, that's that's exciting. So that, that doesn't seem that far away, really, does it? It's coming, coming around quite quickly the way uh, COVID seems to be telescoping time into uh, into, some, <laughs> into strange kind of parcels these days so, so that's obviously the next step for the company as far as that then do you have to get approvals from various different authorities like the fda or the tga and all that side of things is that something that takes a while as well that's right so what we're aiming to do is design those those bigger multi-site studies to satisfy multiple regulatory bodies at the same time. So we design it to a level that's going to meet TGA, CE and FDA. So in terms of, you know, what we're doing now on next steps, it's it's finishing the build of that first gen unit. Mm. Those units undergo a process of verification and validation. And then we take them into expanded, you know, multi-site studies. Uh, and then in parallel, we're talking with the regulatory bodies such as the FDA on the design of those studies to make sure at the end of those exercises we're getting the outcomes that we want and then what's the sort of time delay or is there a delay between the the, the hospital unit and the the mobile unit for ambulances is that something that you're doing concurrently or is it you have to sort of uh, adapt what you've got and then 
then put it into ambulances. Sure. So from a regulatory perspective, you know, the, if we take the FDA perspective, our expectation is that our Gen 2 device, our ambulance model, will be able to use our Gen 1 device once that's approved as a predicate device. So it'll be a 5, yeah. 510k pathway, which will be quicker. And a lot of the evidence and support that we're building out in the hospital will support that ambulance model. So, you know, our, our view is let's get the first gen out into market, adding value in ICUs, stroke wards, you know, even angio suites, cardiology wards, building building uh, a body of data and getting support from, you know, all the key opinion leaders. And that will that will help accelerate what we're doing uh, in the ambulance market. So, Scott, as far as the, the business model goes then, in terms of getting revenue in the door, is it the sale of a machine or is it, do you actually rent the machine? How does the actual dollars in the door work for you guys? Sure. Look, the, the market is changing quite quite a lot. So we, we need to be flexible. So in, in some markets, we may sell the, sell the machine and, and all the consumables. So for the machine, we're looking to price at around 150,000 US, which mm-hmm. puts it in the same category as a, a higher end, uh, mid to high end ultrasound unit, but obviously a fraction of the cost of a CT or MRI. There's consumables, so a disposable cap, single use per patient. We're aiming to price at around $20. Uh, and then there's also, uh, so within our headset, there's a membrane. That, it's a silicon membrane that inflates and deflates. Uh, and it does so to accommodate different head sizes. And you recall, if I don't know if you've ever had an ultrasound or seen someone have an ultrasound, that the, the sonographer will apply an ultrasound gel. And they do mm. so to help the penetration of the ultrasound waves in, in, into the body. Similar principle. So within our membrane, we have a proprietary gel that will also be a consumable that, that's replaced. So that's one model. Uh, then there's you know uh, preventative maintenance and service. The other is offering the device on a monthly rental model, monthly subscription model. So the, the device itself, all the training, all the software, consumables, accessories, upgrades, everything's all bundled in on, on a monthly basis. And that's, you know, that's becoming increasingly attractive for places like the states where there's you know more more interest in the opex model i, I guess that comes back to the sort of the SaaS model the software as a service i don't know if there's a, a technical term for medical tech as a service but <laughs> I, i'm sure, I, I, I'm sure I have, there is i have heard mass medical imaging as a service but uh i, th- okay. I, I think we might steer clear of that one we'll, we'll just say uh, uh capital equipment plus consumables or, or monthly subscription yeah, I think that's probably safer. Yeah. As far as competition goes, I'm I'm sure that there's there's other guys around the world looking at this problem, and it's such a huge problem with strokes. Do you have any competition that you see that's out there? And you think, oh, we got to be careful. These guys, they might get there before us, or is that not such a big issue anyway? No, it, it, like you said, it's a big big market, so there's always going to be um, multiple multiple people going after it. Um, for for the Gen One, for the in hospital device, we would see the closest competitors being those companies that are trying to make CT and MRI smaller, more accessible. Right. But, they, but you know, what we know today, they're, they're still very big. They, you know, require a radiographer to come with them to operate them for the most part. They take up a lot of space in ICUs and stroke wards. So they've made them smaller, but they're still, you know, five, 600 kilos. And in the ward, it's, you know, you need something that's very easy to use. We also have that advantage of no ionizing radiation, which means we can be used for continuous or intermittent monitoring every hour, every two hours as necessary. Um, right. so, so there are those companies, but then Gen 2. So in the ambulance space, we wouldn't see smaller CT or MR as a, as a 
competitor for a largely scalable use case, but there are a handful of companies using uh, EM techniques, not dissimilar to us, to make smaller devices. We haven't seen a lot of a lot of data to prove that they're providing a similar utility to us, though. So one company doesn't make images, another uh, does make images, but they have a very large device and they haven't published any 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 results out of their studies. So look, we keep a close eye, but I, I'd like to think we're, we're we're pretty far ahead of the pack in terms of what the the value proposition will be for our Gen One and Gen Two devices. It's certainly hope so. So Scott, looking out. 12 months what what can we expect to see from you guys as catalysts for uh stock price appreciation you've had a a relatively uh you know the stock price has done pretty well recently what do you think the catalyst can be in the next 12 months sure it's look it's going to be a busy 12 months i can i can promise you that so obviously we've got the build of our first commercial unit so going from a clinical prototype to a desi- device designed for manufacture and and that's very near term. You know, we we came out to the market recently to say those first devices will be built in Q3 of this calendar year. We expect outcomes from our engagement with the FDA. We're going through a process known as the FDA Breakthrough Device Designation Application. We expect uh, to finalise and get an outcome from that process this second half of this year. That has implications around. Uh, the speed of communication with the FDA, but also some positive implications around guaranteed reimbursement downstream in the US for four years from approval. So that 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 could be very meaningful for us. There'll be further insights from our clinical data that, that, that we're collecting at present. So one thing we've been able to do is as we run our studies, as there's meaningful observations and insights report along the way, think of it as interim analysis as well as end of study results. And then probably finally, um, outside of commencing those those bigger multi-site studies for, for first regulatory submissions, it would be expanding upon existing co- collaborations and bringing in new collaborations and partnerships that will help us with with, with that commercialization uh, process. I guess as far as the actual manufacturer of the machines go, whether it's uh, first gen or the second gen ones, the ambulance, is that something that you're going to be farming out to an Australian maker or is that something you're looking overseas to uh, to get produced? L- Looking to do that all, all ourselves, um, we, right. we expect that we can certainly at least the next couple of years manage that at our, at our existing site in Macquarie Park. So all the, all the components, you know, we have components from Japan, from Germany, it's all assembled locally. Same model as, you know, ResMed and, 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 hmm. and Nanosonics, many of these other, other device makers. You, you, you want to keep a close eye because it is a medical device. We, we, we don't want to be outsourcing that. Yeah, I, I guess we've seen uh, in the last, uh, well, 15, 16 months how critical supply chains are for these high-tech components that go into things and trying to keep them close and in within striking distance, I guess, because of the, the implications of that uh, COVID supply chain disruption. So Absolutely, and, and, and where, where we can employ redundancy, so two suppliers or minimising critical supplier uh, reliance we, 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 we've done just that yeah it's 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 a real issue it, it does seem that australia is is pretty good at this sort of stuff i mean we've got some fantastic global examples in the likes of cochlear or, or the resmed although there's a lot of competition now in the resmed space uh, with phillips and fisher and paykel etc uh, and also other suppliers of medical devices like nanosonics etc is is that fair to say are we or do we punch above our weight internationally uh, uh, absolutely you know there's, there's there's some fantastic success stories obviously there's 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 plenty that haven't worked out as as well but you know it all, again it all comes down to i think you mentioned it at the beginning 
finding people that have a track record in doing this, you know, learning from their missteps as well. But, you know, people that have taken a device from the concept phase through trials, through the regulatory approval process, and then through to global commercialization. There's not necessarily a huge amount of people with that expertise in Australia, but, you know, certainly through 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 Ron, and we've now brought on a number of his former colleagues from Nanosonics, we've been able to uh, get some fantastic people to, to join the team that, that have done it all before. Makes a huge difference. It does. I guess, finally, Scott, the, the question that many people that are investing in, in med tech or uh, in farmers asks is, how much is it all going to cost and how, how much cash are you burning through and how much cash have you got? Will you need to go and raise money in the market, et cetera? How's, how's the cash position at the moment and what, what sort of cash burn have you got currently, if you can say so? You don't sure. have to say. No, but. no, I can, of course. And uh, you, you might be pleased to see that we've been certainly running the business and achieving a lot on the smell of an oily rag. So our burn <laughs> has been, historically, it's it's generally close to about $1.5 million a quarter or, or, or less. So, you know, at, at the end of March, we had 11 mil cash. And then I mentioned there's this $8 million grant from the Australian Stroke Alliance to draw down on, staged, you know, staged grant. Mm. Um, so we're well funded for uh, product development and, and clinical activities. And, and of course, we always keep an eye out for other non-dilutive grant opportunities that, that, that would allow us to, to do things, do things uh, quicker. Scott, I, I wish you all the luck with the machine, both the, uh, the hospital version and the ambulance version, because I think it's going to save a lot of lives. It's certainly a, uh, a fantastic in, uh, technology, I think, that you guys are working on. So good luck with that. And Hopefully we'll see it in the. Um, I was going to say we'll see it in the shops pretty soon, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those one of those ad things. You'll see it in the shops pretty soon, but uh, let's let's hope we see it in hospitals and ambulances pretty soon. So, so Scott Kirkland, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and giving us an update on the EMV story. It's certainly an interesting one, and I've been following it for some years since seeing Ron present, as I said earlier. And uh, wish you guys all the luck in the world. I think it's going to be fantastic. My, my pleasure. Thank, thanks again for having me on, Henry. I've, I've very much enjoyed our chat. So thank you. Thank you.